from you who would you like to hear as a guest on the podcast send me an email at matt at wisefoolpod.com or direct message me on instagram or facebook the entire world is now available through virtual recordings and i want to take advantage of that i want to talk to people in south america asia and africa give me some names and contacts of professional people that work in different aspects and different elements of the art world You can also help by supporting our network through our Patreon account. You can find us at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the wise fool, all one word. If you enjoy the conversations and the insights that you gain from the guests, I would appreciate a five-star rating and please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I know that one of my weaknesses is my inability at self-promotion. So here we go. If after hearing this conversation you want to know more about me and my artwork, please go to my website, matthewdoles.com. M-A-T-T-H-E-W-D-O-L-S dot com. Thanks. You are uh, Luis Martin. Did I pronounce that correctly? Correct. Or you can also do the uh, anglified version, Luis Martin. <laughs> I know. I listened to the podcast, so I heard you pronounce it correctly, and I tried to give it the little twang uh, of your, uh, I believe, Hispanic uh, origins. Mexican. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I noticed that you're from, you are from California, living in New York. Um, you went to FIT. I read your whole bio. It's pretty, pretty self-explanatory. The one thing that sort of stood out to me was is that you have a, a title that you have defined yourself as the art engineer. Where did that come from? You know, that came about at FIT. So for the thesis project, I had to do something. And by then, after four years, I was like, this is not going to amount to anything. (laughs) So I was very disappointed with my education. And I thought, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm going to have, I'm gonna create a machine that will make my work for me. So I took these little toys and I ripped them apart, you know, those little dolls, dogs that kind of go forward and jump to a backflip. I opened those up, attached the pen to it, and it started doing these amazing designs. And I thought, wow, I'm an engineer. (laughs) <laughs> so I thought I'll call myself the art engineer. So ever since then, it's really been this moniker that I use that has allowed me to be like, I'm not just going to make art. I'm going to implement art into my life to give me access, access to give me access if I want to, right. To give me the things that I want in life, not just to be stuck in a studio and drawing or painting or collaging. Stuck in a studio. I, I would love to be in my studio all the time. <laughs> Totally. But I, you know what happens? So I've been very lucky and I've had a lot of experiences to work with artists. And at one point I was running a gallery space that was the center of about a hundred studios. And what happens is that the artists rarely come out and intermingle, or if they do, it happens, you know, just one-on-one or, or, or you know, we, we tend to be kind of clicky because we, we kind of see each other and we identify who has similar idiosyncrasies. So my job was to kind of bring everyone together and 
kind of uh, highlight the opportunities that exist when we chat with each other. This person knows collectors or this person has a business that can collaborate with you. So the stock tends to be that, like we, we tend to kind of shut off from the world, which at the moment is, is a plus, but you know. For some people, some people, they really need that. I mean, like my, my wife is a bit more social than I am. I'm uh, somewhat of a recluse, so I'm perfectly fine with this. Ditto. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I've been preparing for this all my life, honestly. Yeah, pretty much. Like, I'm perfectly fine with that. I don't understand why everybody has a problem. Like, this is my dream. Like, I, because now also nobody else is really working really hard. So I don't feel like I, I should be going out and, and like, I don't feel this weird obligation of like, oh, I need to go to this art event or I need to go to this, you know, whatever exhibition because none of them are available. So there's, there's none of that external pressures to go do anything. And so I can just be here. The world caught up to us, you know, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it won't last, but you know, so be it for for the moment. Enjoy it. So, I noticed on your resume also that you you've done a lot of different different things. So, you you went to FIT, which is traditionally a fashion school. You now do more sort of visual arts types of works. I've seen that you have uh, posters and and sort of uh, uh, collaged uh, prints and T shirts and other things that you've done as a sales thing. You've got such stuff available on Saatchi. You've been a curator. You also run a podcast. So you, you're like the consummate side hustle guy. Like you've got many different things in the, in the, you know, irons in the fire. Why do we ha still have to do this in this day and age? It's more of a chronology, right? Like that's what I've, I've did. Then I jumped to this and I jumped to that all within the lane, you know? So I'm not doing all of them. Uh, maybe I am, but I'm not doing all of them simultaneously. It doesn't feel that way. But also I feel that it's so natural to me, right? Not not the hustling, because that had to I had to read a few business books to be like, okay, right, this is how you do it, because I had no idea. But the art just felt I saw absolutely no need to look for things that didn't involve what my calling was. I, I realized very early that my calling was art. That's what I do, that's what I'll do. That's my healing, that's my offering. So I realized that if it's art related, jump in, you know, this is for you. So I've been able to translate that into many things. Being in New York, where you have to have side hustles, I think it's also has to do with what's lucrative, what's working, because I'll tell you a lot of things that I've done that have been so moving, so enriching to my life, haven't been enriching to my pocket, <laughs> right? So you keep moving forward and you keep doing things. And I think this podcast that, I, that I've been doing has been a reiteration of that. And while it isn't bringing, paying my mortgage, but it's kind of plotting opportunity for that in the in the near future but above and beyond that i get to talk to amazing people i get to meet you i get to meet people that i had no access to prior so that's been really exciting indeed my 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 con my concern slash interest like the reason why i created my podcast is that uh, basically i ended up in europe and i'm an american and i realized that i I've been in academia, so I've been a professor for almost 20 years, and then I suddenly realized, now that I'm not a full-time professor, that I, I have no idea how the art industry works anymore. Uh, things have changed, and quite honestly, I was in my little ivory tower of academia, and I wasn't paying attention. And so 
I want to know how is it working these days? So like you're a, a young emerging artist uh, in New York, like you're in the hub of lots of the, the art scene that, that exists in the arts industry. So like, what are some things that are, you know, different for you, I think, or what are, what are some things that you have to do that maybe like people of my generation, how old are you, by the way? I'm 39. No, you're not that all different. No, I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm not that, I'm not okay, that far behind you. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say you're. <laughs> I'm 46, so you're, you're you're not that. You're maybe one generation below me. Even closer. But, yeah, absolutely. But it's still it's it's my disconnect is because I was in academia. So you know how it is. As much as I love talking about art, and as much as I love talking about sort of inspirational things and all this kind of stuff. I also am really concerned because I feel like a lot of artists these days cannot afford it. Absolutely. I want to try and figure out little tidbits of knowledge, gain a little something from every person I talk to of like, how can we put our creative endeavors on a good, effective path to make it so that we can be stable slash successful slash not have to worry about paying the bills, you know, kind of stuff like so what kind of experiences have you had with that kind of stuff in New York? Right on. So I think part of my narrative, even though I am in New York, is demystifying the fact that New York is not the best place for an artist. While there is tons of things, in quotes, happening, you pay for them dearly. Even if it's a free event, even if you're just walking down the street and there's great you know, street art, you pay for it. So I think at this very moment, it's become even more apparent because right now people need help, right? Through this whole virus. And it's just not there, you know? It, and the people at the very bottom of the totem are the artists, are the, the people who are working uh, in the supermarkets and the cafes. All of the cafes are closed, which are usually, you know, a, a employed artists. So it, it's tough. I think New York is a great place. There is definitely something magical about it because of its history. and. In the United States, our history isn't that long, right? So it, it's a great place to be. But I think as far as business and having worked with so many artists, part of my spiel was diversify, diversify, diversify. Don't just do one thing because something can, a parameter can change and then you're off balance, right? Which is kind of the, the advice that I've always followed. I'm an artist. It's my thing. It's my, it's my lane but I'm juggling different objects in the air at different moments of being in, on, in my lane, you know? So it's a, it's a big part of, of being an artist. And I think honestly, when you said that you were uh, an academic, uh, I started in art at, in museums. So very early on when I was 16, I was kind of indoctrinated into this, this art culture, into this art class, which is a term that I had, that I have very recently come to terms with, you know? Uh, it's true. It is true. I know. I, I, I'm sitting here making faces. Nobody can hear them. So, yeah, it is true. There is sort of a an elitist class of people that are sort of surround themselves in the arts and the arts industry and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. So, and I'm part of that. You're part of that. And I think there's a bit of a disconnect, right? When we're in the art class, we have access to things and we have clout which doesn't necessarily translate into having a good a good paycheck to, to pay your bills or whatever, right? So there, there's, there's a, a divide. I think an artist 
tends to be on the opposite side of that. Sure, they can be the art handlers and, and they'll get in that way. But artists really have to create their own economy by creating their work and valuing it themselves and looking for opportunities to connect with buyers or, or collectors one-on-one, -on -one, you know? Right. But I mean, what I keep thinking about is like, okay, I'll give you a perfect personal example. My wife is always like, oh, you can do you're a photographer, you can take pictures, why don't you go out and be a photographer, in addition to teaching, doing portfolio reviews for lens culture, running a podcast and being an artist. So I've already got three full time, what basically three full time jobs, or what I hope that any one of could be a full time job. And I have to go out and do another one. And so it's the idea that why can't creative people I mean, outside of obvious people like graphic designers and filmmakers and things like this that can actually do this, but even they're still working on the gig economy generally. Why can't there be a structure in the world that allows for artists to just be artists and not have to do all these additional things? Why do we have to spend all of our time with social media, updating our website, doing public relations, doing interviews and podcasts, you know, doing all these additional things to try and sort of get people to notice what we do and find a way to be able to make a living. Well, I think that's the thing you ha there can be a structure and you have to make it for yourself because society isn't going to make it. It's not in their best interest. The only thing, you know, it, it happens a lot. We create these structures and if they're lucrative for somebody else, they'll take it and they'll run with it. Just kind of like the whole gentrification thing, right? Artists come into neighborhoods and make it beautiful and they live there for a few minutes and then come, you know, the, the procession of people that turn into something else. And in America and the United States, that's the way it goes. But we can... Oh, it goes like that in Europe too. Oh, it does. That's unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think also just like the idea of New York, a lot of us, me in particular, have this idea, oh, if, you know, if the U.S. goes to hack, I'm just going to get on a plane and go to Europe somewhere and hide somewhere. No, it's not That's really. Much. No, don't get me wrong. It, it's um, Europe is fabulous because there are so many cultural hubs so close together. Uh, you know, Paris. I can get to. I can get to London on a one-hour flight. I can get to wow. Paris in a one-hour flight. I can take a train to Berlin in four hours. I mean, there. It's really quite uh, nice to have so many diverse cultures uh, quite uh, accessible to me uh, very easily. So. There are a lot of benefits to it. And of course, the cost of living is substantially less than New York, you know, which always begs the question. I had plenty of friends who are artists who have lived in New York and they all leave at a certain point in their lives. Uh, like they love it at a certain point and at a certain point, generally it's after they get married and when they're thinking about having kids, they get out. Um, so like, you know, why, why is it that some, so many artists still feel the need to be in New York? Because they read it in a paper, they read a story, they read a book, they saw Sex and the City, they saw uh, Mad Men. Its reputation precedes it in so many ways. And if, well, forever, right? But, but just like Paris. Well, it's just Gotham. Like, exactly. Right. There you go. Even more in, in the movies of, you know, Batman and superheroes. This is where superheroes live. Uh, but just like Paris, you know, like I, I think of Paris and I think, yes, I want to go to Paris, smoke a cigarette, drink coffee. That's not legal, right? So <laughs> it's not legal. Nope. So it's this idea that we perpetuate in our heads. But I think more damaging is that when artists come here, 
they're not prepared. They know it's going to be rough because everybody tells them, oh, it's going to be rough, but it's going to be fun. But it's it it's very damaging to your spirit. I think I don't think everyone has the the same uh, resolve or the same immunity, right, to to certain knockdowns that you get. In New York, the only response is if you're if you want it, then go get it, no matter what, right? And that's the answer to everything, no matter what. So you feel less strong, less valuable, less important if you can't deal with it. And why should you deal with it? Right. Well, you also have to have a very thick skin because basically anything in the arts in New York or any major metropolitan area is that like the, anytime you say, Hey, I'm an artist, the answer is no. And then you have to sort of convince them of a yes, but like the automatic answer is always no. Hence why I called myself an art engineer and doing these things like podcasting gives you clout because I think also on the other side of the art world, people view us as flaky or as emotional or as sensitive, <laughs> right? So people Wait, don't we're as sensitive as anybody else. Exactly. But when they know, oh, this guy can hold a conversation and, and knows how to set up a mic situation. Okay. So he, he, he might be dependable, right? So I think diversifying as an artist gives you accessibility. I'm going to, I will oppose you on that position because I I constantly have talks with uh, gallery owners and curators and things like this. And they're always saying the consistency and sort of a a, a nice, beautiful line of like this series of work that you produce leads to this series, leads to this series, sort of nice consistency. This is what galleries, this is what collectors want from their artists. They don't want, anytime they see an artist that does a million different things, that's oftentimes will turn them off. So I think part of it is the question of like, what kind of career you want to be building. Totally. And I think people have the idea, the idea or artists tend to have the idea that's the only way to thrive as an artist, right? Yeah, there are many different ways to do this. And you're choosing to do it in a sort of a diversified, almost a Andy Warholian sort of, um, you know, I notice a lot of your prints are like $25. So, you know, a, a inexpensive, large quantity of works would equate to the same amount of money as one work sold for a large quantity of money. So, and no one's taking a cut and I'm, I'm making all the decisions. So a few weeks ago before, right as this whole virus is happening, it was Armory Week in New York. And I met a art consultant on a flight to LA and we thought, oh, we hit it off. And she's like, oh, let's get together and we'll go to one of the fairs. So when we got back to New York, I went to Independent, which is one of the fairs. And she knew everybody. I was walking around. There's beautiful work. And it was a, an amazing reminder of like, oh, right, this is amazing. But this is not where I want to be. This is this. I don't fit into any of these spaces. One, they're mostly white artists with a pedigree of going to colleges, you know, the the echelon of the colleges. Yale. Right. Two, the work is huge. Not many artists have the space to make big work. And she, you know, in our conversation with between consultant and I, she was telling me, well, yeah, my collectors want big pieces. Who has access to big studios in New York? Right. So, and we were were looking at a painting, whatever. It was 30,000 plus, right? And, and that's a made up economy, right? That like that, that was just paint on a canvas. It's a made up economy. So a few days later, moved to today. I mean, it might still be worth that because these people are, have tons of money and it doesn't really affect them yet. 
but you realize why am I fighting for this when I could be making things on my own terms when I don't have, I think my biggest motivator is I don't have to ask anyone for permission. I'm going to do everything that I, that I, that moves me and take it from there, you know? And, and I've honestly, it sounds really ridiculous, but I, I don't know if I've been at more peace <laughs> since, other than now, because I'm home, I'm collaging, I'm making my work, I'm, I'm still selling, which is great. My husband is in my studio working from home and we don't have to leave the house. Like we're on, we're kind of like living a surreal in a cocoon of safety. And you can use stamps.com to send out your stuff and there. not even have to go to the post office. Exactly. I'm, try, I'm trying for a sponsor. Does, did that work? I really hope they're listening. Yes, because that, that, yeah, that was brilliant. So, thank you. And you can do that. You can find people who can sponsor you. Like, you know what I mean? It, it's it's like we've been building up to this. You have. Oh, no, don't kid yourself. I am the worst business person, I believe, <laughs> on the, the planet. Not really on the planet. I have a good, I actually have a smart business mind, but I don't actually know. I can't, I'm, I'm a bad deal closer. Yeah. That's my problem. Like, I can talk to you and schmooze you and, and encourage you to fall in love with something, but closing the deal very difficult for me. I completely understand that. But here's the thing. So I was having this conversation with someone yesterday on Instagram, uh, this other collage artist. She's like, how do you get your work to be so crisp on Instagram? I'm like, well, I take a picture with my phone, then I clean it up on Photoshop. She's like, oh, I don't know how to use that. I'm scared. I'm like, listen, just like in business, in Photoshop, you only need to do, you only need to know a few tricks that'll get you to what you want. And that's it. I don't need an MBA. I, you know, you don't need to, just, just know the three hoops that you have to jump consistently and you got it you know so that's and that's that's literally my skill set on photoshop i only know how to do three things that's all three I hoops know. yeah you know yeah same thing with business i know how to do three things auto, auto adjust <laughs> contrast auto adjust uh, uh what's the other one and magic eraser i just discovered magic eraser amazing oh yeah magic eraser. yeah absolutely well content aware fill is also fabulous but that's yeah but it's a little bit more tedious to do but, and this is why we need to talk, because you know things that I don't, and you know things that I don't. I am a photographer, so I do know those things like, pretty well, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, to better or for worse, because like at this point, I don't own a camera anymore, so. How do you yeah. shoot? Uh, in in <laughs> Here in Europe, uh, rent, you rent equipment. Oh, nice. There's, nice. I mean, technology is moving so quickly that when it came to camera equipment in particular, I saw absolutely no reason to continually buy the newest cameras that come out every year, or every two years, or every three years. How often you know you have to update? They're very expensive, but I mean, yeah, I, in turn, what I do is I just rent them and then basically bill the client for the rent. Nice. And that way, I just instead of owning equipment and it's sitting around my house or my studio for you know eighty percent of the month, and I'm not earning any money off of it, just you just rent it when you need it and. There you go. It's just one less stress on you. See, someone that didn't know that here in America is going to be like, yep, that's what I'm going to do next. I mean, see, you're just dropping uh, gold nuggets everywhere. There are so many of those rental houses. Like in New York, I think the first rental house I ever saw was in New York, actually. Yeah. So they exist in major metropolitan areas, no problem. So most people can do it. And there are even places that if you if you have enough forethought, you can 
you, there are like online places that if you live in the middle of nowhere, you can rent very nice equipment. They will actually sh sort of ship it to you for like three days or five days or 10 days, and then you ship it back to them. So you can rent it for sort of short periods of time kind of thing. So there are lots of these kinds of things. It's fantastic. But yeah, I mean, technology, expensive technology, like video equipment, camera equipment, things like that, either A, you could get away with lesser quality stuff, you know, in many cases, but in the other cases, if you need that super high quality stuff, don't buy it, just rent it. Yeah, I mean, also, I think with, you know, the layman, uh, you have everything you need to just start doing it in your pocket. Like I've been, I just started YouTubing, which I stayed away because I'm not a millennial. I didn't, I didn't, I was moved to, I didn't want to get caught up in numbers or who's watching what. But I thought, you know, this is a really good time just to share my process and just for me, just to talk into the air. So I've been doing that and I've been doing it with my phone and it looks great. You know, it's yeah. like, what have, what have I been waiting for? Like <laughs> pandemic. So you know? I, don't get me wrong. I thought about doing it. I, I'm, I don't really have a, uh, the um, physique, let's say, that <laughs> would make me feel confident in front of a, ca of a video camera. Uh, I don't even like having my picture taken, so I can't imagine putting myself out on that. So podcasts are great for me because it allows me to be in my pajamas <laughs> and not have done my hair for that day. And you have so a great on. voice, too. I do. I have a much better voice than I do body, so <laughs> I find it much better. But I was on TV once on a TV show, so that was entertaining. What was it? Um, I think it's called, like, I want to be a National Geographic photographer. It was Whoa. a competition show, and I was a judge on the competition show. Okay. And it was very entertaining because it was actually in the Middle East, in, uh, in the United Arab Emirates, and they dubbed me. So, <laughs> so while I was physically there and the expressions of what I said were in the, the finished TV show, um, they dubbed my voice in Arabic so you never actually hear my voice oh no yeah <laughs> body entertaining indeed yeah that's great that sounds exciting it was fun it was, was great fun like? being there oh i lived there oh. uh, I, yeah i lived in abu dhabi for six years i was a professor at zayed university uh teaching emirati women art what a great job it sounds great it really, does. it really does. Was it not? Yeah, uh, on the record. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, like, the question is, what am I willing to say about it on the record? Exactly. Um, it was very good money. The lifestyle was magnificent. You know, they, they paid very well. You were given lots of benefits, lots of perks. The school had unlimited budgets for buying resources and space and everything needed for all the students. But there, I mean, living in a, a Muslim country, being an artist from America, moving to a Muslim country with the limitations on things. And on top of that, I was teaching Muslim women. So mind you, they could not take pictures of each other uh, wow. they, because it was against the, the Sharia law to even photograph women at all, much less like take pictures of their faces or anything like this. So the limitations on what they were able to take pictures of because the even the educational system still fell under sharia law so that was difficult and then there are other uh, external pressures that sort of got placed on you like because uh, i had a friend of mine who actually posted something 
on Facebook who's a she was a professor or she was a just a teacher in the area she posted something on Facebook and the person who she posted the picture of uh, it was a picture of a car and the person who owned the car saw the post on Facebook and my friend got thrown in prison and was deported for having done that so that sort of put us on a bad trajectory of not enjoying to being there and, and this goes back to sort of why i'm doing this podcast because for six years i was in abu dhabi in the united arab emirates and i couldn't really use social media i, I couldn't participate in it in the way i wanted to participate in it because literally i was quite afraid for my job <laughs> uh, if i just if i said something wrong or did something wrong that somebody was offended by i could be thrown in prison and deported and i didn't want to risk that so in order to do that i didn't get involved in podcasting i didn't get involved in doing youtube i didn't get involved in uh social media very much and so you know i'm six years behind in many ways on those kinds of things and that's a lot of time in the digital age yeah, but at the same time, it kind of propelled you to actually do it, right? Because maybe if you would have been in the comfort of your of your freedom, you wouldn't have been propelled. Like, I feel like a lot of people are going to be, you know, in this quarantine, people are going to be like, oh, I better do something or I can do something. Let me live. I recently saw that Sharon Stone is taking up painting while she's in quarantine. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Can't wait to see that. Hers and uh, George Bush's, right? <laughs> George Bush is not a very good painter. Sharon Stone, she, I mean, she's just learning, but she looked okay. Well, she has depth, you know? Well, she was, I think she was painting flowers from what I saw. So it's it nice. Well, see, I'm sure her paintings will go for a lot of money because she has that access. She has that network. Well, it's funny. Like, I've noticed a lot of like actors and famous celebrities sort of going towards the arts a lot. Like, Jim Carrey was painting a couple years ago. Um, Lucy Liu has been painting sort of her whole life and is now suddenly coming out as sort of uh, exhibiting her works and things like this. There are a number of celebrities are finding sort of other outlets, I think, um, that so I find interesting. I think it's the most annoying thing in the world. It's because it's just like going to an art fair and seeing hideous art. And then you realize, oh, it's rich kids making art. <laughs> you know what I mean? And this but is isn't, that most of, isn't that most of art, though? Well, not in my world. <laughs> well, I mean, you mentioned earlier about like the fact that most of the art was made by sort of like older white men. Um, I have to admit, so not everybody knows, but I'm a white guy. I'm from America. You're not a white guy, but you're in America. That's right. So have you have you felt any sort of uh, backlash, pressures, any sort of uh, issues of basically not being white guy in a white guy's world? You know, yes and no. Honestly, it, it wasn't an issue. It isn't an issue if you don't think about it, right? I can go, if you are Latino, if you're anything in the US and you just go along with what you're dictated to do, you know, kind of like, then you're fine. If I was, if I would have stayed in LA and kind of just worked at Starbucks and or stayed at the museum and, and became an educator and stayed an educator, that would have been great because that's what they were pushing me to do. That, that was the kind of the trajectory. But I said, no, I want more. And if you want more, that's dangerous because then people are going to be like, what do you mean you want more? So, you know, I realized early that I, as an educator in this art class that I was part of, that was my lane in that structure. If I wanted to be an artist behind the velvet rope, I'd have to jump hoops. I'd have to ask permission. I'd have to do all these things that I thought, well, why if other people don't? And being 
in the museum and kind of looking under the hood and various museums because I worked for MoCA, LACMA, I was like, oh, wow, these decision makers are just people who are, you know, have a very clear idea of what's going to be on, on, on the wall. And if, and the art that I did see, like, uh, of Mexicans or Latinos were art that kind of reiterated the idea of what a Mexican was, right? So Frida was everywhere, right? Like, oh, God. And God bless Diego, Diego Rivera. With the sombreros and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that's cool. And the Virgin Mary. God bless the Virgin Mary. But it's like, that's great. But that's not who I am at the moment. That's not who I You know what I mean? It's, it's again, it's this idea of our... our uh, our nostalgia for New York always being, you know, the Empire State Building or Paris and drinking coffee. It's like, no, that's, that's like stuck in time. Like Africa, you think of Africa, you think of safari. No, there's cities, there's like technology there now, you know? So it, it felt that way to me, but I was, I've always been very optimistic. You know, I've, I've, I've seen things, I've been through things, so I know it can get worse. So I'm super optimistic. And working within that creative class that I keep talking about, I realized, wait a minute, I have so much more access than any of my peers, any people around me. So I can go into beautiful spaces. I can connect to people who know about things. So when I was 19, I was like, I'm out of here. I'm going to New York. I didn't know anybody. You know, I did that whole thing that people do. And because I worked for museums, it was easy for me to get a job just on a high school diploma. And I got a job and so yes, it is, it is, there are certain things expected of you. And, and, but I think it's true for anybody, right? If anybody, if you want more than you're allotted, then you're going to get a lot of looks and people are going to tell you, stay in your lane. And it's your job to be like, okay, or walk faster and go higher. And, and I mean, that's my trajectory, I hope, you know? Well, it's funny you say that my wife and I must, so keep in mind, my wife is Czech and I'm American and we have this debate going back and forth because Czech people, as a general whole, have this sense that uh, it's it's best to be humble and and sort of not stand out in the crowd and just sort of go along with it and just just do enough do enough, but not anymore. Um, whereas I come from America, and America, it's you can be anything and you should strive to be the best in the world at right. whatever you want to do. And so we often sort of clash on that perspective because it seems like that's a very common thing in this part of the world that, the, and they sort of resent it about <laughs> Americans. Absolutely. I can totally see that. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's the American gift, honestly. If, if I, if, if there's any patriotic, patriotic essence in me, it's that, I mean, as an American, I, I have this DNA that says go for more because you can do it, you know? And I, and, Humility is a huge thing in, you know, in every other culture, but it's also, I think it'll be our downfall that we're not humble and, and you know, it, it's manifested in many ways in the White House. So, yes, you know, it, it, everything has its course, it's full circle, and here we are. When it comes to politics, current politics, I'm not optimistic, but uh, what I am optimistic about is the fact that I'm not in America. And yeah. so that's good because I have not been there the whole time that uh, Trump has been in president. So um, I, I haven't actually seen the changes myself, but I'm sure if I when the next time I come back and visit, I'm sure that I will be able to feel a, a difference going oh, on in the country than, sure. because I left nine years ago and haven't really gone back since. So it's been a while. I think also um, what, that this experience has done is now we're kind of a collective 
in a sense that we're all experiencing these traumas together, even if it's pro <laughs> Trump or not, because before the only thing that kind of kept us together was like media, right? Like, oh, we're all watching the show. We're all watching this on Netflix. But Game after, of Thrones. Exactly. But the day after he won the election, I went out with a friend and the whole city was just in mourning. You know, it, it, it's similar to what's happening now. We're all in the same boat. So we got to help each other out. And I think that's the takeaway. Okay, so let's take this back to the arts world, though, because like I feel like there's a lot of things that are pushing the art world into this very, we'll, we'll do it like a class system idea. So like there's this upper echelon, high class, that the secondary market, the people paying millions of dollars and tens of millions of dollars for artworks. And then there's these sort of lower class or lesser class or I don't know, le different class. <laughs> I don't want to make it sound bad, but that that are sort of just muddling through and it, that gap between the two, the, the, the art stars and the starving artists, it, I feel like is getting bigger, not smaller. One thing that even before all this started was in my mind. As an artist that's on Instagram, as an artist that's kind of very active, I get a lot of invitations by startups. Oh, I had this new website and, you know, we're promote artists and, and blah, 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 blah. We'll sell prints, blah, 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 blah. And to these people, artists are kind of disposable, right? There's so many of us and they're kind of going to use us as their, uh, as their guinea pigs. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, but they're not doing anything to build community. They're not doing anything to, to help the artist. They're, they're feeding into this idea. Oh, I'll help you become an art star. No, the whole art star thing. Why do you want to become an art star? Literally an art star is like a dying rock, right? Or a dying thing that's going to fizzle out. Yeah. It shines brightly even for three seconds. Stop. It ends quickly. Right. So we're sold on this idea in my studies of art history and the people that I can emulate thinking of the people that everybody loves, like Frida, like Basquiat, these people had miserable lives. Like these are, these are people who were like, they're martyrs. Like why the hell do you want to do that? So the gap is wider, but as it becomes wider, then it becomes irrelevant to me anyway. And this is something that I preach in my podcast. It's like, you don't even have to be part of that game. Like it, like there's this other side that you can be eating. You can be wherever you are and connecting with people who will support you. And you don't have to grovel. You don't have to pretend you don't have, you know, so that that's kind of like the, the art world that I'm trying to create around myself and bring as many people who want to come with me, but you don't have to be part of that game. And that's, that's kind of what saved me as a kid from downtown LA from the wrong side of the highway. You know what I mean? I was like, no, I don't, this isn't the game that I want to play. Was he literally all morning before I got on this podcast with you? I've been doing a, 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 a big artist grant that I've been applying for. So I'm trying really hard to learn to play the game, but as an outsider, so like I'm not somebody who has gotten a lot of residencies or received a lot of grants or any of this kind of stuff. It's still very hard for me to learn how to participate in that art world. Uh, you know, I can I can write an academic paper, I can do things in academia, but that's not the same as being a practicing artist, writing grants, getting residencies and these kinds of things, which is a whole sort of class in and of itself. Totally. These people that, that have the ability to get these grants and do these residencies are a very unique breed that I have a lot of difficulty with because mostly because 
I'm very bad at writing about my own artwork. And those people have this amazing balancing act where they make, let's say, let's say they make above average work and they can write about their work in an above average way. Therefore they're spectacular versus I can think of a number of artists. I know some artists that are astounding artists who cannot write about their artwork at all and they'll never get a grant they'll never get a residency i also know people that write really really well and make crap artwork and they'll also never get a residency either but it seems like right now in the arts world there is this heavy in interest in people who are both proficient at making quality visual art and writing about it at a very high level I feel like is uh, awkward. It's not, that's not what we're trying to do. We want to spend our time elevating the making of the work to be the best work. And, and we don't want to have to spend the time on writing all these things. Well, there's a that's few me, things to that. That's my rant. Yeah, no, there was a few things to that. One, I think, you know, there's, you have this whole generation of people who've been raised on, you can do anything, honey, anything you want. So when the kid says, I want to be an artist, there's all these other people who are applying whole to generation friends. of Americans, just to be clear. Correct. Correct. And since this art world we keep talking about is centered in America, right now, the trend, the hotness, or right before the, the virus, because it's going to change now, it's, it's going to flip the page. It was people were interested in black women artists, right? So there's, mm -hmm. because you can't just be interested in, forever no it has to be a moment and it has to move on right so that's where the focus was now that this has happened again every all you know it's like the dice are being shuffled they're going to be thrown out so it's constantly moving and artists don't need to write why should they write they're artists right i mean if you can do it so one thing i'm from california as, as we've established i'm pretty self-helping i'm super guru i'm like you know i i meditate Yep, California. I totally, got it. Totally. So one of the things that has to feel right is this spiritual law of least effort. And that sounds lazy, but it's like, okay, if if it's if it's this struggle to do and it's causing me turmoil and self-hatred, self self-doubt, I'm not gonna do it. You know what I mean? If if so like right now I'm really the listeners can't see me, but right now I'm really fancy. I have earphones. I have this amazing mic. I have like a light set up for. And the he has this beautiful view behind and I, him. Thank you, and a beautiful view. But normally, I podcast with my earphones because it has to be easy for me to work. Right. So everything that I do has to feel right, and I think if it feels right, then you kind of can't fail because you're setting your own parameters, and that's important. So the whole thing with like writing grants, I didn't want to get in that game ever. So my thing has always been about collaboration. You need money. There's so many rich, great people out there who are willing to write you a check and be like, here, it's a tax write-off in America, right? So for instance, I did this, I was running my own gallery in the middle of all of these studios, a hundred studios. I never paid rent. I never- Was this in New York? It was in, Bro in Brooklyn, yeah, in New York, in, in Bushwick, which was the, uh, or is a creative hub of artists. I never paid rent because I collaborated with the owner of the studios who needed someone to kind of cultivate a culture. Oh, I love the barter system. Exactly. It's fabulous. Like exactly. if, if, if a barter system could make it so that I can make art and pay my rent with it, just like, you know, trade off, I'm all for it. But unfortunately, most people who own properties are not willing to do that. And I mean, also like if you stay in a property for a couple of years, they don't want 25 pieces of yours, you know, one every month kind of thing. So like, it's not going to work, yeah. but I would love that if there was some way we could barter for 
the the necessary parts of our lives that we have to go out and hustle and do side hustles to try and make up for make money towards then i'm all for it and these are the systems that we need to kind of establish now during you know the even playing field and artists have to like be like okay so one thing that i'm doing right now which i've i've, I've always put collages on my instagram but right now i'm doing this initiative that this uh, artist in England did called the artist support pledge, where you say you're going to sell work for under $200. And when you have $1,000 in sales, you pledge to buy the work of other artists at, at $200 or less in your community to kind of keep each other going. So I'm like, Oh, cool, I'll do this. You know, I, I'm, I love supporting artists. I love my artists. In doing so, I, I'm putting on Instagram, but I'm also being very specific with the parameters. Okay, so this is the pledge. This is how big it is. This is how much it is. And what's happened is that I've been sounding like hotcakes because now I've shown people how to interact with my work. I've shown people how to buy my work. Whereas before it was kind of like this mysterious, oh, wow, if I want to buy art, I have to kind of be cool. I have to be a millionaire. No, if you spell it out and you're sincere about it, it, it it's communication is key. So I've been really fortunate and really lucky and happy that I've been able to sell these works right now, especially in this time. But I attribute it to that because I was able to spell it out and show people how to interact with me. So if you want to barter, you know, set the parameters and send an invitation is, is what I'm saying, you know, it's interesting. Okay, so I want to ask you then, so you're saying that you're doing very well with your sales and, and on through I'm assuming at this point online uh, avenues. Okay, help me out what works what doesn't so like what what methodologies because i know you you have your own website that you sell stuff on you also do have some pieces on sachiart.com and you're saying you're also selling through instagram so like how much time how much effort which ones do better which ones do worse and and have you figured out any sort of why do you believe some are doing better than others sure so i mean right off the bat if anybody's listening and wants to sell anything put a flower on it put a face on it. People love that stuff. So there, but more, more technical, I think, for, um, the communication, like I said, if you can spell it out the easiest people will, will under, you know, you have to state the obvious and you have to let go of our mystique because as artists, we, we revel in this mystique. I love, I love my, my mystique. Yeah, totally. That's why I don't do a YouTube channel. I am mysterious. Exactly. I see, I see the screen of smoke around you. I know me too, but if you want to get some dough and pay for your coffee, you need to kind of let people in, you know, leave some breadcrumbs. Uh, that has been amazing. And I think that's, that's the most important thing. Be be direct. And I think also one thing, the whole genuine thing, obviously, is really important. I'm not coming across as like, oh, he's capitalizing on this moment. No, I'm just saying the exact same thing that I've always been saying. I've always been this like positive, self-helpy guru kind of sarcastic. I, dude. I like how self-aware you are about that as well, too. It's so important, right? You have to realize this is all bullshit, <laughs> you know, and you have and that's OK. That's really OK. If that's what you feel, you know, you have to be okay with your own uh, fluff um, and just have an understanding of not how not personal it is when people are like, oh, that's nice. That isn't that's nice. That isn't I mean, you do portfolio reviews. You know what it's like, you know? Yes, I do. And I constantly get people telling me how angry they are for the, me with for the things that I say about their work. So, yeah, get over it. I mean, so 
one another thing that I tell everybody about everything. So when someone comes to me and they're like, "Oh, I'm I, I'm lonely. I don't have a boyfriend. I'm too fat." Blah blah blah. Or this, I I paint squares, and this is a very American of me. There's a market for everything. There's a market for true. everything. There's a market for tall chubby guys. There's a market for small chubby guys. There's a market for unibrows. People have their idiosyncrasies, and you just have to find your people really oh yeah i mean i often joke with my wife because like i live here in prague uh, czech republic and one thing i've noticed since i've been here i haven't been here that long but one thing i've noticed is they have zero interest in any art not made in the czech republic wow that's it like that's kind of beautiful you, actually if you're a czech artist the czech market will support you they will buy from you and all this kind of stuff but if you are a foreigner and you try to exhibit and sell in the czech republic they will not show you and people will not buy you because they just don't care about you. Um, so, I mean, the thing that I've learned over the years is, is that artists often think that their best market is where they live, but that's actually not true. Uh, oftentimes you basically like you have to seek out where your best market is. Like for me, my work, I actually know in Europe, I do better in Germany and in France than I do anywhere else in Where Europe. Where is that? Um, I have my, well, my heritage is German, so I'm sure that I probably have a little little kick on that. And I work figuratively, um, which uh, France is a huge general advocate of, of figurative artworks as well. So, you know, and, but the bottom line that I figured out was is basically, just because you think this is some places your market or just because you live somewhere, that does not mean that that's where your market is. And especially these days with the internet. Absolutely. Can I tell you, so I have this podcast, right? And like you hear me. Please pitch your podcast. Oh, thank you. you haven't said the name of it yet. It's Studio Confessions. You can go to studioconfessions.com and check it out. So my podcast is, you know, it says Luis Martin and that's how I open it. And so it's, it's a very... Spanish names, so you think, oh, it's going to attract Latino artists. It's going to attract blah, blah, blah. And, I'm, and that's who I thought, oh, yeah, great. I look at my demographic in the back office, which I never do. But once in a while, I'm like, oh, let me see who's listening. It's middle America. I was like, whoa, that's amazing. Like, I had no idea I had friends there. Now I have a community there. And it's like, okay. And it just attributes to what you're saying. It's not where you're at always. It's, it's not the obvious thing, which is why I'm saying state the obvious. If, if you know what I mean, so it's it's an interesting thing to be um, to be aware that the fact that you don't know everything, and you kind of just have to explore. Before starting this podcast, one of the things that I had a great revelation in my own life about was that I made a lot of mistakes in my life. Uh, one of my mistakes that I've talked about on the podcast before is that I, I moved a lot. Uh, and in moving a lot, I didn't build a strong foundation of a, of a network and all this kind of stuff. And I was very bad with keeping connected with people. But even worse than that, I was very arrogant. And that does not go over well in the arts world. Nobody wants to work with the arrogant person. People want to work with the people that are fun and nice to work with. I mean, you don't have to be a people pleaser, but just don't be an ass. Sure. Absolutely. And I was an ass for many years. So I'm trying to sort of make amends for that through this podcast. I think you're doing a great job. Okay, thanks. <laughs> we have such an amazing... Uh opportunity as podcasters, especially podcasters that interview people because your community is growing daily or weekly or however you do this. And these are people we can tap into 
at any moment. And we, and we should tap into them constantly to kind of build that community. But these are the people who will bring the people to your event, you know? Oh yeah. Well, I, well I, yeah, oddly enough, I'm not so concerned about local people, but because they don't, aren't concerned about me, but the, the world, like, I mean, I'm going to be in the near future. I'm going to be talking with some, uh, an artist in New Zealand and I've got another podcast lined up with a curator in Canada and then a curator in Brazil and like, all these really great far reaching people that I could never have had exactly. the opportunity to talk to five years ago. Exactly. And so my podcast, I always did it face to face. I, I, I thought it was, it was just more personable. I thought it was, it gave me the perfect excuse to travel. So I'm like, oh, there's an artist in Seattle we have to go meet. Let's go. So we went, we, you know, we do these things. But now because we can't, it's pushed me to do this virtual thing. I have to learn a bunch of things. But on top of that, I'm literally speaking to somebody from the Czech Republic. Like what? Like, you know what I mean? When, when was that going to happen? So it, all when these, you came it, to the Czech Republic. Exactly. And believe me, I would have. So, you know, it's these, these things of uh, these opportunities that are opening up that will keep opening up. Uh, this podcast started as me and it will continue once this, uh, the whole uh, pandemic stuff sort of passes by, I will still continue to travel. I, I really enjoy showing up to people's galleries and institutions and studios and sitting down with their microphones and having a drink with them and talking with them. There's something very beautiful, even though like all the listeners are only getting the, the sort of the results of it. But that for me, there's something really great about having that time in their space to discuss them and their lives and their interests that I find very special. Without a doubt. Well, come to New York whenever you want after this is done. <laughs> yeah, New York. I, lo I love New York and I hate New York. Oh, so, please, everybody. Yeah. I, don't think, I don't think anybody can claim uh, an adulterated love for New York. Oh, yeah. No, I have a lot of bad memories there. From my, uh, the, I used to be a, a bit of a drug addict. And so I used to go up to New York to party a lot. This and, is the place to do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it was fabulous. I mean, I got some of the best drugs, had some of the best nights. But uh it was it's uh so i've got sort of sorted past memories of 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 new york what's your best memory of new york my best memory of new york that's awkward i'm not sure i have like a single best memory I mean, stupidly it's going to sound really stupid but like i remember being very young i think i was like 8 years old and my parents uh, it was the first time we'd ever gone on a trip. We were in Washington, D.C. is where I grew up. And they, they said, okay, you're old enough at eight years old. They said, oh, you're old enough that we need to go see a show on Broadway. Nice. And so so we went up to New York and stayed in a very nice hotel, which we never did so because we were not wealthy. But we stayed in a very nice hotel and we went and saw Cats. <laughs> it's awesome yes well i mean we're talking early 80s yeah so like cats was actually That's a good the new york thing, thing too yeah, yeah, yeah so i mean that, that kind of stuff but like my personal memories like uh some of the best memories are like the random art galleries that i walked into that i did not know about like i'm the times that i've gone to moma and like like last time i went to moma i just happened on while i was there one of my favorite artists just coincidentally like i literally didn't know the exhibition was going on happened to have an exhibition of his artwork and i was just like hell yeah that's amazing because uh, i'd never seen his art in real life before wow. so like that was my first chance to ever see his work you know, in real life um the robert heineken wow uh, he's a photographer from chicago and uh, he has i 
yeah, I worked very influenced by him in my youth. And then while I was there, I just happened to be like in there and I like turned a corner and I saw this, I saw a, a starry night was there and I'm just like, Oh yeah. Okay. Of course. Starry nights here. Why would starry night not be here? It was just, you know, these random things. It's, it's never the planned things that are the most Correct. amazing. Right. It's always the, the randomness of things like, like one of my weirdest memories that I still have was that same trip when I was like eight years old, my parents went, we went to, we went to this new area of New York called Soho and, and, and people didn't know what this thing was. It, they, they couldn't figure out that it was South of Houston street because it was pronounced Soho. So they were looking for Houston street. But anyways, the, we, I remember going into this art gallery and there was a, in uh, artwork that was a Harley Davidson motorcycle that was being held off of the ground by Cupid dolls. <laughs> I was eight years old. Super. I thought that was fascinating. Like, you know, so like it's those little tiny randomness things throughout my life that have sort of influenced my works. Absolutely. That's New York. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like my favorite work ever that I've ever experienced in my life <laughs> Okay, it's not a New York story, but I love telling the story and I've never told it on the podcast. When I was in like sixth grade, we went to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. And there is this artwork by this guy whose name I don't know. And it doesn't even matter. The point is, I don't, it doesn't even matter what his name was. There was this guy who was a janitor in the D.C. school system. And then when he died, uh, they found out that he had a garage that he had been producing this thing in his entire life and told nobody about it. Like, so literally his wife didn't know about it. His kids didn't know about it. Nobody knew about it. After he died, they found this garage. They opened up the garage. He had built an entire throne room uh, to the second coming of Jesus Christ out of trash from the DC school system. So this is like construction paper, aluminum foil, like all this stuff. And he literally built a throne room for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then on top of that, from trash, and then on top of that, he wrote five books. And I'm saying wrote, he hand wrote wow. five books, both sides of the page, all the way through like 100 pages. Each. So like 500 pages, he wrote this book that was written in a language that only he and Jesus Christ could read. Nice. And to this day, nobody has ever deciphered it. That's amazing. I'm, I'm thinking this is what's going to happen after this quarantine. People are going to go into the apartment. <laughs> there's going to be thrones. There's going to be extra wings made out of yeah. toothpicks. That's amazing. Well, but I mean, back to your point, like the, the thing that impressed me the most about this guy's artwork was is that he made it for nobody else. He, he made it for himself and to share with theoretically one other person, the second coming of Jesus Christ. But... But it was it was not for anybody else. Nobody else was ever meant to see it. He made it because he believed it. He had a passion to do it, and and he did everything in his power to do this. He took trash and built this thing out of trash. That's amazing to me to have that passion to to need to do something versus the need to make money or the need to get prestige or be famous on Instagram or whatever else. Like this guy just had to build this thing. And nobody could stop him. I mean, isn't that what we're all doing? Just making great things out of trash? <laughs> Sometimes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. That's great. Yeah, I, I think New York has that. But I also think it might spoil you a little bit. 
because then you go somewhere and you're like, oh, they don't have this. Well, then make it, make it yourself. You know, when, when I was a kid, my, the most amazing thing that ever, well, one of the amazing things that ever happened to me educationally was I went to this art camp in, in California. It was Cal Arts. It was at the school that Walt Disney created. So we stayed there for a month and we made art. And when I tell you, every educator was just so passionate about educating these kids, us, and art supply was free. I, at the time I was studying photography. So like I, I had access to a dark room, black and white in color, free paper. I was like, what? You know, paper is super expensive. Yes, it is. So we had all of this access and, and the cafeteria was there. I can eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches all day. So it was this amazing thing. And I thought, whoa, I want to go to art school because this is what it's going to be like, right? No, it wasn't. So from the moment I got to FIT and was really disappointed that nobody gave a damn and all the kids were still complaining about their parents in the bathroom smoking pot. I was a little bit older than they were. So I was like, you know what? Well, then I'm just going to make it. I'm just going to, I'm going to do, I, I became president of the fine arts club and called it the arts collective and started doing shows every other week. And like, no, you have to, you know, you have to create the culture that's missing around you or else it's never going to happen. And I think that's a New York thing as well. You know, the, the, fine, get up and do it. So I think that's been the story of my life, you know, get up and do it. Everything that everything that I've been able to accomplish has been on my initiation. No one's invited me. <laughs> I'm just trying to think I'm like, I wonder if things in my life, whether I was invited or whether no, I made a lot of things in my life, for sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up with a sort of the philosophy that my parents, of course, handed down to me, which was basically, if you if you don't ask, the answer is always no. And that's such a good, you know, that's such a good thing to have ingrained in you because the people who do have humility tend to be, you know, it tends to be a trap. Yeah. I mean, cause if you don't ask, the answer is no. So like, if you want something in life, if you want a new career, a different, whatever, an opportunity, whatever, like if you don't ask somebody that opportunity's answer is no. Absolutely. Cheaper rent. I mean, right now is the time to negotiate your rent. You know, <laughs> if, it's, if anyone's ever going to have a soft heart, it's now. So, yeah. What is your, um, where are you going to go as soon as the doors are open, you can go anywhere? I have no plans. Though. I'm perfectly <laughs> fine with being home. Like, I don't know why everybody needs to go somewhere. <laughs> Die hard recluse for sure. You weren't kidding, huh? Well, I mean, well, don't get me wrong. I am not rich. I don't have money to travel and all this kind of stuff if I don't have a, a need for it or a purpose to it. Uh, so like. Yeah, I don't need to go anywhere. <laughs> we were supposed to, for my, my birthday is in June. We were supposed to go to uh, Paris for my birthday with my family. And, you know, all, that's changed. But I was, I've, I haven't panicked throughout this whole experience, really. But the moment that I thought, oh, my God, was when they announced that the Louvre was closed. And I thought, yep. oh, God, this isn't good. You know, as an yeah, artist, right. it was like. <gasps> right. When cultural Mecca closes, then there's a problem. Totally. And then I had to go uh, ship some things the other day, two days ago. And I thought, okay, I'm going to run into Starbucks, get my coffee. It was closed. I thought, oh my mm -hmm. God, if Starbucks is closed, you know, something's, <laughs> you know, those little moments kind of tugged at me. But other than that, everything's been okay. Yeah. No, they're in here in the Czech Republic. They're pretty good. They, they keep food, pharmacy and things like this open, but anything that's not that is closed. Do you have Starbucks there? Of course. Is it open? I have no idea. I don't drink coffee. Oh, look at you. Europe is amazing with supporting artists financially. Like, so 
much money. It's disgusting. Wow. Like look to Norway and Sweden and Iceland and Denmark. They have a ton of money. Like I was looking at grants that they have, they were giving away like just one grant. So like they have like 10 grants a year that they give out, but one grant had a budget of like 3 million euros that they then separated out by like they gave 20 people this grant but i mean even still that's still like fifty thousand euros a person that's amazing. that's pretty good so you're kind of living out a fantasy that i think a lot of people have right oh, i'm gonna move to another country and just whatever so as an expat uh do you surround yourself with other expats do you what's what are the pros and cons that's an interesting question you flipped the switch you're now interviewing me but it's fine <laughs> The um, I, I try to engage in the communities that I live in, but some, but like in the Middle East, it was difficult because in the UAE in particular, ninety percent of the UAE is actually expats. So like the UAE nationals, so people born and raised in the United Arab Emirates, is only ten percent of the population of the country. So it's kind of hard to engage with them. Uh, here in the Czech Republic, um, they're a bit standoffish. It's, it's a bit more difficult. They're a very reserved society, They and they don't really trust outsiders uh, as much as some other countries might. So it's just it's not that they I don't have a lot of friends, but they, they just take longer to make sure. and longer to build than in maybe some other places. Um, like... I moved a lot when I was in the United States. I, I moved, I think, 15 times wow. to like 15 different places throughout the United States. Bring you from the law or something? Uh, maybe. <laughs> Understandable. Um, but uh, they, in that, in those moves, I always knew that it took two years. Uh, when you when you move in the United States, it takes two years to settle in and make good friends. Like the first year you settle down in a place, you'll make some friends. You'll realize they're bad people for whatever reason. <laughs> they're not the right friends. They're not supportive or helpful or whatever. And then you'll find new friends in year two. Um, in other countries, expats, it takes more like five to 10 years to really sort of get accepted by the communities. But once you're accepted, you're you are accepted. Wow, that's a very long time. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if it's where you want to be, then that's what you do. Yeah, and if it wasn't Czech Republic, where else would you go? Right now, we're thinking about actually moving to Spain. We often think about Palm Springs in California just because it's a, mm -hmm. it's a very arty town. It's the, it's the city with the most gay population, so you know it's clean. You know, Is it really? Yeah, so crime rate is low, good restaurants, art buying community, which isn't often a thing in the United States. The other thing, there's earthquakes there, which I do not like. But you should go to Berlin. Berlin is an amazing gay culture. Yeah. And and it, it is fabulous for artists. Like, wow. You want to be you want to be a practicing artist in a foreign country, Germany is the place to do it. And specifically Berlin, because they fund artists very, very well. Even non locals? Non Even non locals. Wow, Amazing. Yeah, I mean, but I also have very lofty American dreams. Like one of my goals is to like see my work at Target for for the layman to just be like, yeah, I want a Luis Martin print for five dollars for my daughter's room. You know, I, I have you know, I, I I love Lisa Frank. Do you know who Lisa Frank is? Mm -mm. So if you grew up in the eighties and in your American, Lisa Frank was this very girly stationary. Uh, 
producer. So she made these pencils and trapper keepers and folders of like the most saccharine filled imagery of like unicorns with like pink. Uh, I just looked cream. her up. Yes. Yes. I remember these things on trapper keepers. Exactly. So, you know, she, she was a graphic designer in essence, but she was an artist. So actually, and, and that's a really amazing case study. So she had this vision and she can make this beautiful art, but her husband who's not her ex-husband was the businessman who kind of helped her get it on the trapper keepers and get it into stores. So I kind of want to do that with target because I'm an American. I love target. And I've been going to Target since I was a kid. So see, that's funny because I'm in Europe, so it's IKEA is our reference here. Oh yeah, really? Mm -hmm. it, yeah. It's not just. I mean, I know here it's not just furniture, but do they have like a bigger? Uh, oh yes. Food section. Yes, they actually have a very good um, artist prints and things like. They actually partner with artists yeah. and make prints like this. Like yeah, IKEA is doing very well with partnering with designers for designing furniture and then artists for you know creating posters and prints target doesn't do that with fine artists they did it once or twice but for whatever reason they stopped i've been hounding them they haven't returned my calls but yeah that's part of the pro that's part of the dream <laughs> that in starbucks actually can i tell you my husband and i drove from la to new york on a whim and we stopped at every starbucks and Every Starbucks had the same artist at that moment. And I thought, whoa, this is better than any gallery because you're in the zeitgeist, you're in the you're in the visual language of the whole country, if not the world, because they're everywhere, right? Well, it's interesting because like there, there's this old quote from a photographer who I hate that I can't remember, but <laughs> that I'm so bad with names, but I, I remember ideas. The this photographer talked about how early in his career he had the option of being a fine artist and exhibiting in uh, exhibition spaces, galleries, and museums, and stuff, or he could be a magazine, uh, you know, editorial, fashion, whatever photographer. And he and he he said, either I can influence two thousand people that might show up to an art exhibition that I have, or I can influence two million people through a magazine, an image in a magazine. And he chose to be a magazine photographer because it's not always like a lot of people in the arts think that it's about the prestige of where you show, but, and whereas there is also that other side of it where you want your work to sort of maybe be in the lives of a larger quantity of people instead of those elite people who can afford the time and the money to appreciate art in a gallery or a museum setting. Absolutely. And there's that capitalist Henry Ford said, you know, you eat with the masses, you work for the classes, you work for the classes, eat with the masses. You know, it's, it's kind of like, who do you want to serve? Or, I mean, and, and there is no right or wrong. It's kind of who, who, what will fulfill your fantasy, your reality you want to live in. Uh, but, well, see, but, but what I'm sort of getting to maybe is that I, I wish there was some way to be able to do both. Sure. Like, I, I would love to be able to exhibit in great institutions and in prestigious galleries and produce prints and and whatever at ikea or oh, maybe yeah. not target but ikea <laughs> yeah totally no i target's mine no totally i mean my model in my head unfortunately i think they're not doing well through this moment but okay you have the limited group right and, and I'm, i sound very american here talking about uh companies as an artist so the limited group owns old navy the Gap and Banana Republic. So in that order, it's the Peck uh, and Victoria's Secret, and Victoria's Secret. And, right? Yeah. But with the first three, it's that's that kind of ranking system, right? So Old Navy's for 
the the layman, the people in the ground level, right? Then you have the gap. The gap is kind of for your your uh, you know your your middle class exactly. And then you have banana, which is a little bit better and a little bit more aspirational, but they're the same people. You know, and, and I, I, I strive to do that where I'm selling. A oh, wait, I, I have to differ. I used to work at Banana Republic as, no a, a, cl- as a clientele specialist. What? So, yes, I was a personal shopper for Banana Republic for a couple of many years. I can totally see you doing that. It was great fun. I, it was, And I did it in, in the flagship store in San Francisco. Oh. So they are actually very, very separated. They, they treat themselves very separate. I mean, as much as yes, they have the same parent company, they do not talk to each other or or engage with each other and they don't overlap. Um, so no, those are very separate companies. That's amazing. That's amazing. But that's, but that's my, in my head, that's how it goes. Okay. I can sell a $20 print. I can sell a $70 collage and then I can sell a, a bigger painting or a bigger collage painting for X thousand dollars. Right. But what I'm saying is, is that like, specifically, I'll say like the elitist level. So your galleries and your institutions, your high dollar buyers and collectors and all these kinds of people, they don't appreciate artists that then sell the five, 10, $25, $75 prints. Like they want to know that what they're buying is one of a kind, it's unique and, and nobody else can have it, even in a version of a print if they're going to spend $50,000 on a painting. And so what I wish was that there was some way we could literally find a way to have the opportunity for artists to be able to have the multiple income revenue streams, sell your unique high priced pieces and the institutions and the collectors and all this and sell lower priced prints or maybe different work completely at a more affordable price point in order to get more people knowing their names. Well, I'm going to tell you what uh, what I would tell any militia. You have to infiltrate. <laughs> you have to make it into the into the echelons, into the elite as you're journeying in. Once you're in, hold the door for me. Hold the door for us. You know what I mean? And that's the only way it's going to happen. Or start yeah. from the ground up. You know? I, yeah. Uh, have you ever seen the show uh, The Marvelous Miss Maisel? I have not seen it. I don't get Amazon in Europe. Oh, that's sad. Okay, so yeah. it's it's a great show about this comedian in the fifties, and she's a woman. She can't make it. Uh, she's Jewish, um, and that's just a really awesome part of it because it's very Jewish and very fun. But her father is a Columbia professor, and he's very highfalutin, and he's very proud of, of academia and blah 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 blah. And in the in the transcourse of the show, he's kind of knocked down from that position, and he and he's kind of on the floor realizing I'm going to become a militia. Like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to. I'm going to, I have more power in me. I don't need academia. And you know, you know what I mean? And I think that that's a big thing. That's a huge thing. I think once you realize that, oh, wait, I have as much power on the ground floor as I do in this ivory tower. And if not, I can get it. So it's, it's, it's a, it's, I think it's that shift, that mind shift, because to me, it translated as approval. Like, oh, I don't need Yale's approval. I don't need uh, MoMA's approval. Because I'm, I don't need it, but I'd like it. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but carry on, carry on, you know? Well, the honest truth is most of those kinds of places and institutions often won't truly sort of admire, respect, whatever most people until later in life anyway. Exactly. I mean, you know, this is one of those mixed things that like all these young artists that are out there, all these, these Instagram stars and these YouTube stars and stuff like this, they may be 
great and all that, but they're, they're not going to be the ones that end up being having retrospectives at, at large institutions when they're 80, uh, because their, their, their climb and descend is very abrupt. Um, I mean, for me, and don't get me wrong, the thing is, is my podcast is called The Wise Fool, and maybe it's because I'm foolish about yeah, this, right. is that I, I believe that like an artist should be about well, an artistic career should be about a nice, slow, progressive, steady climb throughout your career. And the people that I sometimes meet and talk to often are thinking like, I want to be a star. And like, that's not going to build you a career. Now, it might build you a little bit of fame for a moment, but it's not going to build a career. And so like, I try to, when I teach and when I talk to people, I try to talk about like, you incrementally build your career over decades, not over months. Yeah. And I feel like the younger generation doesn't believe in that. Yeah. Well, again, it goes to that, you know, that whole generation being grown up on, you can do anything you want. You can, you know, if you, I was raised on that. I was too. And I, I took it, I, I took it seriously. I'm like, okay, but I also, but I took it seriously is that I can do anything I want and it takes a lifetime to build a career. Right. The toughest pill for me to swallow was seeing all of these damn artists that were getting the retrospectives and they could hardly make it to the damn museum because they were so old and full of vice. Oh, you know, so you know what scared me straight? Not straight, but <laughs> it scared me to pieces. Um, this movie, and I'm going to get it wrong, but it's about a Japanese artist and it's, I think it's called The Bunny and the Boxer. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Have yeah. you seen it? Uh huh. Okay. Long time ago. So that mortified me because everything this man was saying, I feel right. Like, oh, I, I've given my life to art and blah, 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 blah. And he's crying and he's put his family through hot hell and high water because of his the love for his art. Not only. OK, so I, I empathize because I, I felt this and I feel this way. But then as an outsider, seeing what he's made his family go through, I'm like, what a dick. You know, like he's so full of himself, like get off your high horse and stop asking for wanting this validation. Give it to yourself. Take it from your family, you know? So I'm like, I don't want to put my husband through that. I don't, I have, I have sisters, I have nephews, nieces that I want to contribute to. I don't just want to be this leech of like me, 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 you know? So I think that movie, that documentary really made me kind of, it popped the bubble of delusion. And I think it's kind of like Catcher in the Rye when people read Catcher in the Rye and they're like, oh, this guy's a dick. It was, it was kind of like that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be that dick. Like, I really want to enjoy my life now and not wait until like I'm 80 or never enjoy it because I'm waiting for someone to be like, okay, here's your show. Well, and that's, that's, that's the hard thing, which is what I'm, you know, trying to do with this podcast is trying to figure out how can we make it so as a creative person, so that we can earn enough of a living through our creative things. So we don't have to do something else to get through to be able to continue to make our stuff so that we can get better so that we can have these long careers that will allow us to build. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I went to grad school with at uh, SFAI and uh, I, I can only think of maybe three that are actually still making art uh, of that whole group. So, I mean, I graduated with maybe a hundred people and maybe three of them are still making art and that's not including myself. So it's a, it's a very sad state of affairs that some of the most talented artists are unable to continue their careers and build their careers because well they have to make a living yeah yeah 
but again, what does that mean? Like, so I, there's, I collect my friend's work and there's this guy that I, that I worked with at some point, he was in one of the shows. When I say like, I mean, it just ticked all of my boxes to like genius. This guy was brilliant. Like he did collage, he drew, he painted and I, everything he made. I was like, I would pay anything for that if I could. And in working with him, I got a piece and it's in my, somewhere in my house. Yes, I did the same thing a lot. Trading with other artists. Absolutely. Love it. Absolutely. And I mean, this guy, I'm like, okay, this guy at any moment, right? But he didn't have the, the mental toughness to hang in there. On, on various occasions, he's lost it. He's gone on these rants like, oh, how horrible the world is. And yeah, the world is horrible. But guess what? You are fucking talented. This doesn't come easy, right? And no, it's not your job to get an MA or, or a business degree or go to Target or whatever. That's not even your thing. But we got to figure out what it means to have a life. Like, ha like he's a New York artist. He's from New York. So, so it's, it's difficult, right? Because this is all he knows. But maybe you need to move to the desert and do your work and eat and spend $30 a month on food because that's how much it would cost in the desert. You know, and it does eat peyote and have a good time. Yeah, exactly. It, it isn't the be all end all to be an artist in New York. Come, you know, you have a friend here, stay with me if you want, come once every six months, but you don't have to be here because you're not going to produce your best work here. Well, that's the thing. Like everybody I knew that went to New York, basically they go to New York and they experience a lot. They see a lot. They uh, soak in. It's it's sort of like, like I define an artist moving to New York is the time when they're a sponge. So they go there just to soak up all the culture and the connections and the, the research and the history and the, and the knowledge and all that. And then, and then leave. And, and go somewhere else and make your art there from everything that you gained by living in any major metropolitan area, but in this case, New York. You know, I think, as I think back, I think the, the root of the root of my self-helpiness can be traced down to this one song that was in the soundtrack of uh, Romeo and Juliet by Baz Luhrmann. It was called the SPF song. Are you familiar with it? I know the movie, but I don't know the song in particular. It's a horrible song, but it is like this wisdom bomb and one of it one of one of the the advice he gives in the song says you know live in new york once in your life but leave before it makes you too hard live in southern california once in your life but leave before it makes you too soft and and, and that's the thing right? yes it's, it's, it's very true because it, it'll it'll happen it'll happen Oh yeah, yeah. Soul Coughing is a band that I used to like, and they have a song about how New York will basically suck the life out of your soul. <laughs> yeah, and but again, it boils down to the just know what you need because my shirt isn't going to fit you, your shirt isn't going to fit me. We got to tailor our lives to figure out how to win this game because we're no one. Very few people are set up for success, you know. And it isn't this small, medium, large thing. You got to tailor it with staples, glue guns, you know. Just make you have to make it work for you. Nobody else. That's a marvelous place to end. Thank you very much for your time. I've had a great time for having me. <laughs> <laughs>